This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, today, I'm going to be uh, introducing uh, a concept in neurology called localization. Okay. And uh, I'm going to talk about the development of localization throughout history. And we're going to ask, does everything essentially human localized to the brain? So in a sense, are we just our brains? I'm going to discuss the correlations between mental states and brain states. We're going to ask some questions about this. Is the mind identical to the brain? Does the brain generate the mind? Are the body and mind two separate substances that interact? Or none of the above? Perhaps the whole scheme is wrong. Um, we're going to then introduce Aristotelian and Thomistic metaphysics. And then we're going to make some concluding remarks on the human person. All right. So uh, this is a real brain. And this is what it looks like. It doesn't look that impressive, but it's a really impressive structure. So there's uh, in this 3.3 pounds of kind of this uh, mushroom-like texture. Has anyone ever touched one of these? Or... Yeah? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some folks here. Fantastic. Um, so it, yeah, it feels like a mushroom if you touch it. Um, and when you look at it, it doesn't look very impressive. But it's very impressive. There's 86 billion neurons in this. And there's perhaps one to maybe four times as many glial cells, so support cells. And then between these neurons, there are trillions of connections. So this is perhaps the most complex thing in the entire universe, okay? So the human brain. So I became fascinated with, with this organ in medical school. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I entered into medical school. In fact, I didn't even think I wanted to go to medical school, but my wife said it was a good idea, so I went. <laughs> and when I got there, I said, I don't really like this, you know, memorizing all these things. Uh, but then I got to neuroscience, and I fell in love. Uh, I fell in love with learning about this structure. I thought it was beautiful and mysterious, okay? Um, so I liked it so much, I got a job doing CNS dissection. So I'd have cadavers, and I worked over the summer, and I'd take the brains out of cadavers, and I'd slice them, and I'd plastinate them, and then I'd teach people neuroanatomy from the different structures. And I liked that so much that I eventually became a neurologist. So I've kind of dedicated a large part of my life to trying to fix people who have problems with this organ, or their spinal cord, or peripheral nervous system, or muscles, or neuromuscular junction. Um, and one of the things that neurologists are really known for is this skill called localization. Localization. This is like what neurologists are known for. Can you localize the lesion? If you can't localize the lesion, you're not a neurologist, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the process of locating the site of damage within the nervous system, okay? And this requires a mastery of the neurological examination, which is very extensive. Uh, it requires you to know neuroanatomy and neurophysiology very well. Neurologists can also localize normal function within the brain. So this, uh, this kind of localization has a long history. And if we go back to antiquity and we think about the uh, ancient Egyptians, so when uh, someone of prominence died, they would take their organs out of the body and they would preserve the organs. 
but not the brain. They thought the brain was a useless glob of kind of a glob of fat. So they'd get a pick and they'd put it through the ethmoid bone and they'd scrape the brain out and throw it away and preserve the other organs, thinking the brain just had no purpose. Okay. Uh, ancient Greeks, they would debate. So there are two different positions here. There was encephalocentrism and cardiocentrism. So they would debate, where are the cognitive faculties? Where do they locate? Things like memory, reasoning, the will. Some people thought that it localizes in the brain, and those are encephalocentrists. So Hippocrates, uh, who was born in 460 BC, uh, was an encephalocentrist. A cardiocentrist would be Aristotle. He thought that the, the faculties that we now ascribe to the brain localized in the heart, okay? And I mean, how would you know? I mean, it's, it's difficult to know back then. Um, in a sense, uh, well, Aristotle, you know, he thought that the brain had a function. He thought it was to cool the blood. So it went in, you know, blood it circulates through the body, goes into the brain, it gets cooled. And he wasn't actually totally wrong about that. So the hypothalamus is the thermostat of the body. It does cool the brain, but, or cools the blood. But there's a lot of other things that the brain does too, right? So then if you fast forward to Galen of Pergamon. So he was a physician to gladiators, so in the arena. And uh, he made some observations. So he observed that when a soldier or a gladiator was struck in the head, that the closer the damage in the brain was to the ventricular system, the greater they had deficits in cognition. So he postulated that our cognitive faculties localize in the ventricles, which are fluid-filled sacs in our brain that produce cerebral spinal fluid. So if you're a football player and you bang your head, the cerebral spinal fluid protects you. Uh, it does a lot of other things, but he thought our cognitive faculties localize in these ventricles here. Okay, of course they don't. Um, but this view had for, uh, held for over a millennium. So it persisted for a long time until the time of Rene Descartes, um, who didn't really postulate anything more than this. He said that the, uh, these things, the soul, the immaterial substance, meets the brain in the pineal gland. And there's this interaction between the immaterial soul and the physical structure of the brain and the pineal gland, which is right in the center of the brain. We now know the pineal gland uh, produces melatonin. It has much to do with circadian rhythm. Okay, so um, uh, this theory uh, then then took over for a short while. It was very it had a short duration uh, chronology. So there's a lot of people in this room right now, and you may be looking around, and maybe you notice that some people have different shaped heads, and maybe you make some generalizations about the different shapes of people's head, and you say, "I bet that guy's real nice." You know. He's, <laughs> um, so this is what Franz Gall thought. So when he was a kid, he noticed like in class, like man, this is folks, you know the you know, with this head, they don't seem as smart. And so he thought he could maybe uh, determine certain characteristics based <laughs> off of the person's skull. So he had this idea that cognitive faculties, thoughts, emotions, things like that, that they localize to the cortex. And it's like, well, that's pretty reasonable. But then he thought the cortex exerted a pressure on the skull. And then uh, you could actually localize areas on the cortex by measuring different areas on the skull. Okay? So... Um, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, some event occurred, they'd call this guy, he's a neurologist, he'd come over and he'd, he'd get a little thing and it measures the skull. And, uh, you know, I don't know, the combativeness is here, conjugal love is here. If these things are too close to each other, then bad results occur. <laughs> so, uh, so, like, uh, so yeah, so he was a phrenologist. There are no phrenologists anymore. 
Okay, they've gone extinct. All right. All right. So um, then if you move forward, then things really, really start taking off in the 19th century with uh, Pierre Paul Broca. So for much of uh, antiquity, it was not ethical to do post-mortem analysis. So if someone died, you leave their body alone. You know, um, you don't go in mucking around, right? But this, uh, the ethics of that kind of changed in the 19th century. So Pierre Paul Broca, he kind of followed this guy for a number of years uh, with the intent of, you know, once the guy died, he was going to see what's wrong with him. So, um, so he followed this guy who had syphilis, and he had a stroke, and he lost his ability for expressive language. So he wasn't able. So right now I'm using what's called Broca's area. It's named after him. So uh, I'm, I'm communicating to you. I'm able to express language. But this person had a stroke from syphilis, and um, he wasn't able to express himself anymore. So Pierre Paul Broca followed him around. The guy dies uh, sometime later. So, uh, you know, Pierre, uh, Pierre Paul Broca, he goes into the brain, and he sees that there's damage, there's necrosis in the inferior frontal gyrus. So he says that must be the area that's responsible for expressive language. And this method catches on. So his contemporary, Karl Warnecke from Germany, um, he does the same thing, but he realized some people, they can express themselves, but they can't understand what people are saying to them. They have a receptive aphasia. So right now I'm talking to you, you're using Warnicke's area. As I'm talking, I'm using Broca's area in my brain. So Warnicke does the same thing. A person dies, he looks, and in the superior temporal gyrus, there's necrosis. So receptive language localizes to the superior temporal gyrus. John Hewlings Jackson, he's the father of uh, epilepsy. Uh, same method again, mostly syphilis was very common back then. So there were people who were having seizures and um, he would take meticulous notes of these seizures. It started here, the arm started convulsing, then the arm started convulsing, then the face started convulsing and all these types of things. You take very good notes. And then again, the person would die and he would look and see where the damage is. And he did this really neat thing. So he, um, if you look here, and this is true. So he thought that there was something called somatic topic representation on the brain. So he thought on the motor cortex and the prefrontal, gy or prefrontal uh, gyrus that there was um, kind of this man, a homunculus, that came over the precentral gyrus and represented different parts of the body. And he would notice, he would see someone starting to have a seizure and their face would start twitching. Then their hand would start going. And then their arm and then their torso. And it's called a Jacksonian mark. And, you know, I spend some time in epilepsy monitoring and you'll see this, right? And he was exactly right. He predicted it perfectly. And this has been confirmed. Okay. All right. So then you get to the 20th century and you have uh, Wilder Penfield, who was an amazing uh, neurosurgeon, American-Canadian uh, neurosurgeon. And so he would take people's uh, skulls up. So you have a brain tumor, you have epilepsy, and you need to resect the brain tumor, or you need to resect the part of the brain that's causing seizures. So uh, what would happen here is he would, you know, make a hole in this, you know, he would make, he'd do a craniotomy, and he'd get down to the brain, and he would stimulate certain areas of the brain to make sure he wasn't cutting out any delicate cortex. And what he realized that when he stimulates part of the brain, stimulate the motor cortex, the arm would move. 
the sensory cortex, the person would feel a sensation in their arm. The person's awake during this. So you put them to sleep, you take the skull off, you wake them up. And I've, I've been in these surgeries. Um, it's a very bizarre experience. Uh, but what he realized was he could uh, stimulate areas in the temporal lobe, and the person would actually have memories. They'd have flashbacks of real things that happened in their life. So he localized memory to the temporal lobe. And uh, a lot of you guys may know Phineas Gage. Um, kind of famous story here. So, um, yeah, if you look here, so Phineas Gage was a railroad worker up in the New England area, Vermont and New York. And in 1848, he was um, packing dynamite with a, with a uh, steel rod. This is how you like get the dynamite down. You like, get a steel rod and you, you pack it into the ground, right? And uh, he probably sparked a rock when he was doing it, and it ignited the dynamite. So the steel pole uh, went through his skull. So it went through his eye socket and out the left side of his frontal lobe, right, of the frontal bone, and it went through his left frontal lobe. And um, this story is greatly exaggerated, but he did survive it. In fact, he may not even have lost consciousness. But they said that he had this dramatic personality change after this event occurred. So uh, it was like he was a different man. He was kind of gentle and kind, and now he kind of had no filter. He couldn't plan. He couldn't organize. And he uh, eventually joins the circus and everything. You know, it's grossly exaggerated. I mean, he had a major hit to his head. Of course, you're going to have some, some issues, but he just visited a circus one time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he actually had a pretty good recovery. He lived for 11 years and died from status epilepticus. Okay. All right, so this is uh, an electroencephalogram. I spend a lot of my days reading these things, so brain waves, brain squiggles. Um, so I spend a lot of the day reading these. This helps localize things. It was invented by Hans Berger in 1924, okay? Um, didn't come into clinical practice until the 50s. But yeah, I spent a lot of time. So if someone's had a stroke or they have epilepsy or uh, you know something going on in their brain, uh, you can use these to, to gather more information. Where exactly in the brain are the seizures coming from? Where do they originate? Where do they travel to? You know, do they come from one area in which we can do surgery? CT scans um, invented by uh, Cormac in Hounsfield in the 1970s. So uh, these studies uh, were revolutionary in the 70s. So mid-70s, they start becoming more common. So now if someone has a stroke, they have a brain tumor, uh, you can just get a picture of their brain, and you can just see where it is. This is a CT angiogram right here, so looking for blood vessels. So all these things help localize what's going on in the brain. Magnetic resonance imaging. So this is a technology that uses magnetic fields and radio frequencies to produce these beautiful images uh, from the effects of magnetic uh, fields on water molecules and the spin of electrons and, and all these things. And this will produce these beautiful, beautiful images of the brain, uh, which just give us a really accurate description of what's going on in the brain, okay? All right, so I teach at a medical school and I often give, uh, often give these uh, cases, right? So see, I don't know, you guys can try to maybe tell me where the lesion is. So uh, we got a 73-year-old man. He presents to the emergency department with acute onset right-sided paralysis, gaze fixation to the left, and inability to speak or follow commands. Where is the site of damage in the nervous system? So the student would see this, my medical student, 
I'd say, okay, is it in the cortex? Is it in the subcortex? Is it in the brainstem? Is it in the spinal cord? Is it in the peripheral nervous uh, system? Like, is it in the roots? Is it in the individual nerves? Is it in the neuromuscular junction? Is it in the muscles? If so, what side? If you get that right, okay, what's the cause? So we kind of go through these steps, and by the end of the rotation, they can do this pretty well. Anyone know what side of the brain this would be if the person has right-sided weakness? Yeah, good job, guys. That's incredible. That's awesome. That's awesome. So some budding neurologists. So good. So good, right? So um, that's right. So it would be the, the left side of the brain here. Language centers are involved. Person cannot understand, and they can't speak. So you have both Wernicke and Broca's areas involved here. So I, these areas are supplied by the left middle cerebral artery. So I know that this person's having a stroke and that they have a thrombus, a clot sitting in their left middle cerebral artery, and I need to do something about that. So we get a CT scan. The CT scan looks okay. So on imaging, right is left and left is right. Okay, so if you look at A, you don't see anything obviously wrong. But if you look at B, and sorry, I don't have a pointer and I'm not that tall, but there's a pocket right there. So there's a thrombus sitting right there. So there's a clot. And if you look here, you see this blue area, and that's the area of the stroke. This is the cells that are already dead. You can't do anything about it. The red area, which is larger than the blue area, is if I don't intervene, all of that's going to die. Okay? So what we do is we go in with a catheter. We go up the groin. We put it up into the carotid artery. We go up into the brain. We pull the clot out. There's no blood flow. Now blood flows back. Now we get an MRI. The stroke is the same size as the blue area. Instead of the red area, the person does a lot better. Okay? And that's neuroscience at its finest, right? So it's all these discoveries over time of, you know, pharmaceutical agents, localizing lesions, imaging, all these things coming together to help people. Okay? That's good neuroscience. So then you get to functional MRIs. Okay? And these come about in... Um, 19, late 1990s, early 2000s. So as I'm talking to you right now, again, I'm using my, my inferior frontal gyrus, right? I'm able to communicate to you. And as I'm doing that, because I'm using that area, it's receiving more blood supply, okay? So this shows the areas of the brain that are needing more blood supply, okay? So when I'm doing something, you can take a picture and you can find out where in the brain that thing is occurring. This has very little clinical utility, with exception to epilepsy. So someone may have a seizure disorder and you need to do surgery. You need to remove the area that's causing the seizure, but you need to know where the delicate cortex is. You need to know what side of the brain language is on, and you need to know what side of the brain memory is on, okay? So if you do these things and you give them certain tasks and you can have good determinancy on what side these functions are on and what the risk of surgery is, okay? All right, so uh, kind of in summary with those things. So, uh, and this all has a purpose, I promise. I'm not trying to just make you all neurologists. So um, in the 19th century, motor and sensory function was discovered to reside within specific locations in the brain. Expressive and receptive language was localized to specific regions in the frontal and temporal lobes respectively. Personality was localized the brain regions within the frontal lobe. In the 20th century, memory was localized to the temporal lobes. In the 21st century, advanced forms of functional MRI, you know, imaging, functional MRIs, have localized mental states to certain brain regions. 
So mental states are things like sensations, emotions, thoughts, beliefs, desires, acts of the will, that we can localize these things too. Okay? And in fact, some people even think that they've found areas in the brain that correspond with God, right? So we found areas in the brain which correspond to religious belief, okay? And if there's a lesion in that area, the person's no longer as religious. These studies are not very good, but people believe them. Okay. All right. And we can talk about those later if you'd like. So you can put someone in a functional MRI, and uh, you can, like, poke them with a pin or something, and then you can see what areas of the brain light up. So... Uh, so these are different areas of the brain. You can so, show someone a picture of someone they love, and then you'll see these areas light up in the brain, right? Okay. All right, so what do we make about all these correlations in neuroscience? Uh, what should we make of the correlations between mental states and brain states? Is everything essential to being human localized in the brain? In a sense, are we just our brains? So Descartes said that um, you have this kind of immaterial substance, right? And you have this material uh, kind of mechanistic machine-like body, and these two things interact with each other, okay? But, uh, you know, I think the neuroscientists would say, Wait, well, hold on a second here. So we used to ascribe all these psychological attributes to the soul, right? So that's why the psychology comes from, right? Uh, the study of the soul. So we used to have all these psychological attributes and we'd attribute them to a soul, a mind, okay? And Descartes just thinks the soul is a mind, okay? But now neuroscientists say, well, you know, all these things we've now located in the brain, right? And entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity, Occam's razor, okay? So, um, you know, if mental states are explained by the brain, then is the soul superfluous, uh, superfluous right? So like, uh, say for example, you're riding your bicycle on campus and you fall off your bicycle and you have a helmet on and someone says yeah you know how, how did how did you not sustain any injuries you know i saw you fall off your bike and you say well you know i was wearing a helmet and my guardian angel protected me well they would say maybe the guardian angel here is superfluous maybe the guardian angel reminded you to wear a helmet though right i don't know but um they would say you don't need to posit two entities to explain what happened one will do so if the brain explains everything, there's just no reason to postulate that there's this immaterial substance or mind, okay? So that, that would be the argument. And uh, this isn't new. So if we, um, our good friend Hippocrates, uh, this is like over 2,000 years before a functional MRI, so that men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arises our pleasures, joys, laughter and jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs and tears, through it, in particular, we think, see, hear, and distinguish the ugly from the beautiful, the bad from the good, the pleasant from the unpleasant. Okay? All right. So this has led many to think that the mind just is the brain. Okay? They're one and the same thing. All right? So whenever, uh, as neurologists, we see brain damage, we see mind damage with it. Okay? All right. Humans, uh, so you, you get that uh, Cartesian dualism picture. So like we had this immaterial soul and we had this material mechanistic body. So now we've dropped out the soul and we just have one thing left. And now we're ascribing all those attributes to that one thing, the physical body. Does that make sense? Okay. So humans are purely material. 
there is no immaterial component to our being. Specifically, there's no immaterial mind or soul. Okay, Matter is purely quantitative. It can be measured. Okay, It has mass and takes up space. And when reduced to physical base properties, there's no quantitative components to matter. Okay, And there's no teleology. There's no goal directedness. Okay. So that would be the argument here. That sounds like a pretty strong argument, right? Uh, see if we can kind of get our way out of it. All right. So this has led many to the mind-brain identity theory. Mind-brain identity theory, okay? And um, this theory uh, really doesn't exist in philosophy anymore, uh, but many neuroscientists still believe this. So this is the belief that a mental state is identical to a brain state, okay? So pain is the firing of a C fiber. So a C fibers are these things that if I put my hand on a hot plate, okay, and my hand you know withdraws and I feel this terrible pain, those are C fibers carrying those signals to my brain, and now I'm in pain, right? Okay, the, you got to listen carefully here, though. The argument is not that the C fibers are causing pain. The argument here is that the C fibers are pain, okay? That these things are identical; they're one and the same. Okay, so let me give you some, um, I'll say this and I'll give you some examples. So what does it mean for two things to be identical? If A is identical to B, then any property that A has will also be a property of B, okay, and vice versa. So A and B are really the same thing. Okay, so uh, think about this to make it simpler. So Clark Kent has all the same properties as Superman. Clark Kent just is Superman. Bruce Wayne has all the same properties as Batman because they're one and the same thing. Okay, they're the same thing. So it just means there's two words for the same thing. Okay, so pain just is a C fiber. Okay, so when people say I'm in pain, they're really saying like, I don't even know how you'd say it. Like, I'm a C fiber. I don't know. I'm in C fiber. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. So, so uh, it it just goes to say. So as other examples would be like, so I'm from New England, and many of you are from the South. So like we have different words for the same thing. So like we call water fountains bubblers, right? Uh, we call, um, I didn't, I, I would call sneakers uh, tennis shoes, or, or you guys, sorry, we, we call them sneakers, you guys call them tennis shoes, is that right? Okay. But like tennis shoes and sneakers, they have all the same properties, they're the same things, two different words, the same thing. So I think everyone gets this point, right? So if we can find anything that's true about a mental state that's not true of a brain state, then the theory's wrong, okay? So the question is, can we find anything? So maybe, uh, let's see if we can. So uh, so I'm here, I'm visiting Texas A&M, and I'm staying with my friends, Rollin and Rachel. They're sitting up front, so I'm going to use them as an example. Um, so uh, Rollin's a really docile guy, so he, he'd listen to whatever I tell him. And um, <laughs> so um, what I've noticed, though, is like Rollin's deeply, deeply in love with his wife, Rachel. They've been married for over 10 years. And um, so let's say um, I say, Rollin, the medical school has been putting a lot of pressure on me to come up with some unique research. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to do an experiment. I know it's going to sound crazy, but maybe just listen for a second and, and let me know what you think. So I'd like to put you in a functional MRI. And I'd like to take um, some pictures of your brain when you look at an image of your wife. Okay, So I'm going to show you a picture of your wife in the functional MRI. And then I'm going to take a picture of it of your brain, okay? And I'm going to map out all the areas in the brain that light up, and I'm going to say that that's romantic love, that this is romantic love. And I know it's going to sound crazy, but listen, I'm a scientist, so you have to believe whatever I say. Um, <laughs> I'm going to um, 
I'm going to cut out all those areas in your brain, all right? And don't, don't be too nervous. Neuroplasticity, it's all going to work out for you, okay? So, um, so Rollin, uh, being a faithful steward of, of scientism, um, says, yeah, sure, sign me up. I trust you. Um, so I say, okay. So, uh, so we, we show him the picture of his wife. He's in the functional MRI. And uh, we see uh, all sorts of physiological things are occurring. He, he looks at the picture of, of uh, Rachel, and the, the image just hits his retinal ganglion cells and starts firing. And then it goes through the optic nerves to the optic chiasm, and then to the optic radiations, to the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then the superior and inferior optic radiations, all the way back to the you know primary <laughs> occipital cortex. And then it it goes to the ventral and dorsal streams and goes to the temporal lobes and all these things happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, voila, um, the caudate nucleus, the putamen, and uh, all these things are, are lighting up the cerebellum. We're not sure why. It doesn't make sense, but it's lighting up and sure, we'll go with it. So uh, the scientists are thrilled, right? Their mother has told them if they go into science, they'll never find true love. But here it is. It's on the scale. <laughs> so like, um, so I, uh, so anyways, we all go to work. We cut it out, right? We cut out all this stuff out of the brain. And I put it on this table right here. And uh, Rachel doesn't know that we're doing this, right? Ra Rachel is <laughs> much smarter than Rollins. She'd say, this is a bad idea. But she walks by and she said, what is that? blob of stuff on the table. And I said, well, that's Rollins' love for you, <laughs> right? If the two things are identical, then it would be, but it's clearly not, right? These are the things that may give Rollins capacity to have love for Rachel, but they're not actually love for Rachel, right? They're not really the same thing, okay? So um, the properties just aren't the same, right? So what are the properties of neurotissue? Well, there's a mass, there's a length, there's a width, conducts electrical activity, it's located in space, it can be to the right or to the left or behind or up or down, compared and you know, relative to another neuron or group of neurons. But does love have a length and a width? Does love conduct electrical activity? Is it located in space? Love is directed outward. It has intentionality, right? So, um, you know, um, I don't know, does this water bottle, this, do physical objects have intentionality? Does this water bottle have intentionality? Is it about something else? Is my notepad about something else, right? So physical things aren't about anything else. They're not directed beyond themselves, okay? Further, uh, you think that your belief that you're in love with Rachel is true, but are physical objects true or false? Is it, you know, is a neuron true or false? Is a water bottle true or false? It seems very, very unlikely. Okay, and then what killed it mostly in philosophy is the problem of multiple realizability. So if you're saying that pain is a C-fiber firing in all possible situations, so you create a bridge law, whenever there's pain, there's a C-fiber firing because they're the same thing. Well, dogs can be in pain and they don't have C-fibers. So therefore, pain is not strictly identical to a C-fiber. Now, you may make it species specific, okay, and it's identical to some other physical thing, but that's not what identity theory is trying to prove. Okay, so there are other forms of physicalism as well. So there's behaviorism, functionalism, a limitative materialism. So there's a bunch of different uh, theories here, okay? And I can't possibly go through all of them or really any more of them. Um, but they're all forms of physicalism. And the thing is that people have subjective, qualitative, and intentional properties, and matter does not have these properties. Therefore, a person cannot be purely material, okay? They don't share the same properties, so they can't be the same thing.
Uh, other things to note here is, so correlation does not imply identity. So we know that high blood pressure is correlated with, a, with strokes, right? But that does not mean that high blood pressure is a stroke. High blood pressure causes stroke. Okay, so neuroscience can't differentiate between mental states being identical to brain states or brain states being the cause of mental states. It just can't do that. So neuroscientists, you know, we're going to continue to find correlations between mental states and brain states. But identity can never be established if the properties are different. Okay? So um, a lot of people have abandoned those types of, you know, physicalism. Um, they don't seem to, you know, stand up to scrutiny. Um, so some people think, okay, well, maybe the brain generates the mind. So, um, sure. Okay, so there's some different ideas here. Uh, so epiphenomenalism is one of them. So this is the mind is a causally inert byproduct of the brain. So maybe to give a, a simple example. So, um, so what's like, uh, so causally inert byproducts. So um, I have an old car. And when I start it, the uh, belts often squeak, so it emits this sound. But the sound doesn't have any return effect on the car. It's a byproduct. Sometimes if I start it, maybe a puff of smoke comes out the exhaust. Uh, again, it has no effect in return on the car. It just like pollutes the atmosphere, okay? So, um, so you know, the idea here, mental states are just, they're byproducts. They just kind of get shot off from the brain. But, uh, you know, that they don't, they don't return and have any effect on the brain. And it just doesn't seem right. I mean, if you're taking mental states seriously, things like uh, beliefs, say, uh, I believe that it's raining outside, so I grab an umbrella, right? And then walk outside and use the umbrella, right? But then as a neurologist, I see all these psychosomatic disorders in which people have uh, bad patterns of thought, negative thoughts, and this actually leads to physical symptoms, okay? Sometimes people come in, they have stroke-like symptoms or seizure-like episodes, but uh, when we check physiologically, we don't see any abnormalities. But we send these people to cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps change the pattern of thought, and these folks sometimes get better through the process of neuroplasticity. Okay? So that theory doesn't sound great to me. Uh, there's emergentism. So this is the idea that the brain is really complex. I mean, 86 billion neurons, you know? Who's to say what it can't do? Um, but when the brain reaches a certain level of complexity, a new entity arises with different properties. On this view, the emergent properties or substance does have a causal role. But uh, as scientists, we like to know, well, how? How does this happen? How does the electrochemical stuff give rise to mentality, to consciousness? This is the so-called hard problem of consciousness uh, raised by David Chalmers, the philosopher. Uh, that the movement of matter can manifest mentality is the magical miracle that makes materialism a sect, not a science. So typically what we, when we see uh, you know, something, when we see an effect, that effect has to be present in the cause. Okay? So uh, say, for example, the property of awareness, right? So we're able to be aware of things. I'm aware that I'm in this room. You're aware that you're in this room. But none of the actual physical parts have any awareness. So where does this awareness come from? How would it come from something that doesn't have it? It's like asking someone for $20 when they only have 10. You just can't get the $20. It doesn't have, you don't have it, okay? So what's in the effect must be in the cause, okay? And then if it does happen, then how does the brain exert an effect on the brain? Or sorry, how does the mind exert an effect on the brain? Okay, 
So uh, maybe we're back to Cartesian dualism again. Oh boy. Um, so the mind and the brain, they're two distinct substances interact. There have been some very intelligent people who think this, and there are still very intelligent philosophers who think this. Okay, so I don't mean to say like, I know that it's not. Okay, this may be a better theory than I'm letting on. Okay, so Wilder Penfield, the neurosurgeon, remember the craniotomy? Took the skull off. So what he realized, he realized some fascinating things. So when he stimulated, he could stimulate everything in the brain except for two things. He could never make the person believe that they were moving their arm. So he would, he would shock the, you know, the motor cortex on the right side and the, or sorry, on the left side and the, the, the arm would move. But the person would say, you moved my arm. I didn't move my arm. You moved my arm. He could never stimulate a belief. He could never make someone believe something when he stimulates. Okay. The other thing is he could never stimulate an intellect. There was no area in the brain that he could stimulate that would cause any intellection. Okay. Um, so he postulated that these two things are immaterial. And he, he posited that this uh, resides within an immaterial separate substance, the soul. John Eccles and uh, Charles uh, Sherrington, um, who, came, who came before Wilder Penfield, the Wilder Penfield was taught by these folks, they both won Nobel Prizes in neurophysiology, and they were Cartesian dualists, and they had reasons to try to support this, okay? Um, and this, you know, is again, is made famous by Descartes in nine, no, 1641, he wrote, I think, the Sixth Meditation, and he wrote about this. And in uh, 1643, Princess um, Elizabeth, I think, wrote back to him in 1643. And she, she's the one who actually raised this objection. So, um, so she said, um, so you have this immaterial substance and this non-extended, you have this non-extended mind, this immaterial substance, but somehow it interacts with a physical body. How? Um, objects interact through forces, through physical forces. How can something immaterial and material interact, it seemed impossible to her. This is called the interaction problem, which has troubled dualism for over 300 years. Now, um, I'm not to say that's not without solutions here. So if you believe that God exists, well, God's immaterial, and this is a physical uh, you know, uh, universe, right? And God interacts with it. So um, just because we don't know how A interacts with B doesn't mean that A can't interact with B, okay? And there's many people who do postulate uh, different ideas on how this is possible through quantum mechanics and varying different things. Um, so there are some very good philosophers who actually don't think that this is a problem. Okay, Some do think it's a problem, so they've postulated other theories, parallelism, occasionalism, and we won't get into those. Okay, I maybe just say um, a couple other issues with, with Cartesian dualism, though. So Descartes says that the, the mind... Um, or the soul just is the mind, and a person is really just a thinking thing, right? But what ethical implications would that have? So, um, I don't know, an embryo can't think, um, a fetus can't think, a newborn can't think. Many of my patients who have severe intellectual disabilities or have suffered massive strokes or who are in comas, they can't think. If the person's really a thinking thing, well, you know, what do I say about these folks? What does that mean for them? Um, if you're truly most identified with your mind, that you're really just a mind and you're a Christian, well, what does that mean for the resurrection? You know, uh, do we really need a body? Are we really going to yearn for the resurrection? Um, so I think it, I just, there's something about it, you know. And then there's, a, there's another issue, too, um, if we're really just our mind. 
uh, it may create something called the muriological fallacy. And this is from uh, Peter uh, Hacker, who is a philosopher at um, Oxford University, very brilliant philosopher. And I'll read this quote. He says, a person is not identical with his mind. A mind is something, but not something a person is said to have, not to be. In having a mind, a person has distinctive ranges of capacities. It is not the mind that is the subject of psychological attributes any more than it is the brain. It is the living human being, a whole animal, not one of its parts or a subset of its powers. It's not my mind that makes up its mind or decides. It's not my mind that calls something to mind and recollects. And it's not my mind that turns its mind to something or other and thinks. It is I, this person. Hence, too, the mind is not a causal agent that brings about changes in the body and its limbs by its action. On the contrary, it's the human being that deliberates, decides, and acts, not their mind. So you're ascribing attributes to a part of a person that can only intelligently be ascribed to the whole. Okay, And that's the problem with saying, like, you are just your mind or you are just your brain. No, no, I'm an irreducible person, right? It's not my brain that's nervous. It's not my amygdala that's fearful. It's me, Paula Pena, who's fearful when I'm flying here. Okay, the plane's going to crash. Okay, all right. Okay, so uh, what do we make? Uh, so these functional MRIs we talked about, you know, what do we make of this? So um, does anyone here think that these, this functional MRI data is surprising? Like if you're walking down the street and I run into you and I'm like, hey, do you think when you're... Um, when you're thinking, your brain's doing something, you know? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, it's doing something, right? Um, would you be surprised if I said something like um, that when you're doing a particular thing or having a particular thought or imagining something, that there's a particular part of your brain more active than another part of your brain? Does anyone be surprised with that? No, right? I mean, that's just, you don't need a functional MRI to tell you that. I mean, it helps to localize maybe where these things are. But it's not surprising at all. Like, we already all, we knew this, right? Um, so, you know, when we get this data, you can have multiple interpretations of it, okay? So you could think the brain is identical to the mind. Or you could think from this data, the brain generates the mind. Or you could think perhaps that the mind and brain are two separate substances interacting. So that would kind of bring dualism back into it. So, um, I think it was John Eccles who said something like, um, the mind is to the brain as a pianist is to a piano, okay? So the mind uses the brain as an instrument to think, just as a pianist uses a piano to play music. So um, it's not surprising to see a correlation between these two things, okay? Um, maybe you're a, um, an idealist. So idealists mean they, they don't think any material thing exists. Everything's a projection of mind, okay? Um, they just think these functional MRIs are just an excellent example of a projection of the mind, right? So like, uh, it's important to note that correlations, they raise questions in science. So we find a correlation, it raises a question if you're a responsible scientist. But then the interpretation of that is a, is a philosophical endeavor, okay? But philosophically, it's very difficult to reduce the mind to the brain and say they're identical because the properties of matter and the properties of the mind are so different. 
The same problem also shows up when we try to explain how the brain can produce something radically different than itself. Okay? And because of the radical differences between the mind and the brain, it's hard to see how, if they both exist, they could interact, or the other problems that come with it. But what if we uh, think of the natural world differently? Uh, perhaps things of nature are not just quantitative particles in motion. Maybe there's a different form of metaphysics other than this mechanistic or Cartesian view. So Aristotle... Um, is perhaps the world's greatest philosopher, greatest philosopher to ever live. So he had a very different interpretation of nature, different philosophy of nature. The easiest way to start to understand Aristotle would maybe to be thinking about his four causes, that if you were to explain anything why it is, you have to give four causes for it, okay? So um, this podium here, okay? Uh, so he would say this podium has four causes, okay? So, number one, it has a material cause. It's made of wood, okay? That's the material cause of this podium. Um, it has a formal cause. So it has a certain structure and shape to it, an organization. I, I don't know how to describe the shape of this thing. Um, it has a podium shape, okay? Um, it has a, an efficient cause. So the efficient cause is that which brings it about. So this was... Um, I don't know, you know, probably not made by a carpenter, uh, maybe made in a factory. That would be the efficient cause. And then it has a final cause, a purpose to the thing, right? So it has a, it has a purpose. It's to, um, well, it's for me to, you know, for people to talk to you guys, right? Okay? So it's for me to project my voice and talk to you guys, okay? So when we think about things in the natural world, we have to explain them by using these four causes, okay? This example is a little deceptive, um, because this is an artifact, it's not a natural substance, okay? But uh, form, to Aristotle, is something in nature. It's that which directs, organizes, and forms, and unifies the matter of a thing to become the thing it's to become, okay? And then final causality is this idea that Aristotle had that all natural bodies act towards an end. Everything in nature has a purpose. It acts in a particular way towards a particular end, okay? And that's called teleology, okay? So if we move on to um, St. Thomas Aquinas, who I think is the best theologian uh, to ever live. Um, I'm sure there's some disagreement there, but I think he's uh, fantastic. So, um, so we talked about form. So he says a human person is one substance. So this is different than Descartes, who believes a human person is two substances, right? The human person is one substance composed of form and matter, okay? The soul is a particular type of form. It directs, organizes, informs, and unifies the matter of a living thing to become that which is it intended to be. And according to Aristotle and Aquinas, all living things have a soul, so plants, trees, humans, they all have a soul. It's just that which makes a thing alive, okay? It doesn't mean it's immaterial, like in a plant and things. He doesn't think like plants go to heaven, okay? But it's just that which makes a thing alive, okay? Um, so if you think of like Genesis 2-7, um, maybe this would be an example. So like God forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes into man the breath of life, the Ruach Yahweh, Okay, 
and it makes man a living thing. It's the first principle of life and those things that, that, that live, okay? So the soul is not a separate immaterial substance mysteriously interacting with the material body. It's not a byproduct or an emergent property that arises from the complexity of the brain. It's the first principle of life in those things which live, okay? So Aquinas and Aristotle go further with human beings and plants and trees and animals, okay? So humans are unique in that they have a rational soul, okay? And this gives us the capacity to reason and to will, okay? And he says Aquinas gives philosophical arguments saying that both the intellect and the will because of their operations, must be immaterial, okay? And that which is immaterial, it has no parts and thus survives the death of the body, okay? He says that these capacities of reason and will designate us as being created in the image of God. Okay. So that's a lot of science. It's a lot of neuroscience. It's a lot of philosophy, and it's some theology, Okay. Uh, and I'll let you judge if it's if it's good at that, right? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm a physician. I'm not a metaphysician. I'm a physician. So I'm going to maybe speak from the standpoint of being a physician, okay? So uh, this is a picture of me up in the blue, 2020, I think, pandemic. Um, and um, this guy right here, uh, pandemic 1350. So um, you can see how much science has not advanced in this, right? So it's like, this guy's wearing the exact same thing that I'm wearing, right? Mine's just like made out of different material. Except I don't have something that this guy has. He has a social distancing stick. <laughs> and um, it's a little short. It should be six feet, right, according to the experts. So, um, so he has this uh, social distancing stick. And they actually use these. So they have these staffs, usually longer than that. It really is. I mean, it's, it's to keep, they pick things up with it so they wouldn't get the, the plague. And then this mask here, they'd pack with, I think, some type of flower. They believed if, uh, with the black plague, the bubonic plague, that uh, if they were to smell it, they would get it, which is probably true. That's, the, that's probably the virus entering the nasal passage. So they would pack the stuff with flowers and a bunch of things to block it from getting in, right? So it's actually pretty good germ theory. But uh, yeah, so not a big difference between this guy and me, right? Um, so, um, you know, I, I'd maybe say a few things. So, um, you know, when I became a doctor, it was very important to me that I was, um, I had a certain expectation for myself becoming a doctor. So um, I wanted to do more than just prescribe medicine or do a procedure or something like that, right? I want to bring about real healing in patients. So um, say, for example, someone comes to my clinic and they have epilepsy, a seizure disorder. And, um, you know, but I uh, gave them seizure medicine, they're seizure free. But they're having an existential crisis. They don't see meaning in life. They're very depressed. And I just say, but have you had any seizures? And they say, well, no, I haven't, I haven't had any seizures. Okay, you know, I'll see you in six months. So, um, right? I mean, I'd be, a, that, I'd be a terrible doctor, right? No one would come and see me again. My Prescani scores would be really low. Um, so um, I wanted to be a different type of doctor. I wanted to take care of the whole person, right, as a doctor. All right. Um, and I think the, the pandemic uh, 
was was terrible. If you're a doctor or a nurse, it's awful. Um, I know there's a lot of political whatnot, but just like, who cares? I mean, being a doctor or a nurse, you know, we weren't like watching TV and debating whether the virus was a Republican or a Democrat. Like we were just like trying to help patients who were dying. And, um, you know, it was, it was terrible. So I have to like wear this stuff, right? When I'm seeing all these COVID patients, especially during the alpha and delta variants. And, uh, you know, that mask, it's like, that's the Honeywell mask. It just digs into your face all day. And by the end of the day, you're bleeding. Um, where you have bruises and gashes in your face. And um, you're really hot all day and you're sweating and tons of your patients are dying. Um, and it's really, really hard. And we don't get to go home very much during the peaks of the pandemic. We're there, we're helping. The staff is getting COVID. So I'm having to relearn as a neurologist how to intubate patients and doing all these things, right? So it's terrible. Um, but it's much worse for the patients, right? I mean, the patients are in these rooms and many of them are dying. We're short staffed, so we can't take care of them quite as well as we want to, but everyone's doing absolutely the best they can. And um, but the families can't come visit them sometimes. Um, they have limited you know, visitors and all of this. So they're in a much worse situation than we are as doctors. So I remember I saw this 90 year old woman and uh, I got consulted, she had had uh, the COVID-19 virus, she had acute respiratory distress syndrome, she was intubated, pulmonary status got better, extubated her, but for three days she just would not wake up, wouldn't wake up at all, uh, but she was somehow still breathing. So they consulted me saying, you know, why, why isn't she waking up? There's something wrong with her brain. So I put an electroencephalogram on, an EEG, and uh, she was in what's called status epilepticus. Her body wasn't convulsing, but she was seizing continuously, uh, her brain. So uh, I gave her anti-seizure medicines and I got her out of the, the seizure, okay? And within a couple hours, she starts to um, come to a little bit, but now she's just moaning and she's in terrible pain uh, and she's just suffering, right? So I leave the room, I got all this stuff on. So I, I take the, the PPE off and I'll, you know, I just put like a, some simple, like some glasses on and a little mask, right? So she can actually see my face. So um, I get back in there and I'm thinking, I just have this like oceanic tug to go back in, right? I gotta go back, I gotta do something for this lady, right? She's, she's dying, so I gotta get in there. And uh, so I, I get in there and um, I go to her bedside and um, so I'm at her bedside and, and she's just kind of doing this breathing and doctors know when someone's gonna die, they have a certain breathing pattern. So, you know, I say, your family can't come in at this point. So I say, okay, I got to act as her family. You know, I got to do the best I can here. So I, you know, I always, uh, I put my hand on their forehead. I pray for them, uh, for peace and comfort. I always do the sign of the cross on their forehead because for multiple reasons, but one of them is when people are cognitively impaired, sometimes only tactile sensation can get through. Okay. So sign of the cross is a Christian here. Okay. Um, so anyways, I, I, I'm praying for her and I hear her respirations kind of settling, settling as I'm praying. And I, I open my eyes and uh, I mean, this lady was uptunded, right? She was, her eyes were closed and she's you know, going into a coma, but she's wide awake and she's staring at me. And um, I'm like, you know, just shocked, right? So I, um, you know, 
I said, Hey, you know, hi, hello, you know, uh, you know, do this, do that, wiggle your toes and move your hands. And, and she's doing it all. And I'm like, what in the world? But what she's, she's trying to speak to me. She's trying the best she can to articulate something, but she's been intubated and she's weak and she can't get any words out. So I stay at her bedside for a while. I try to figure out like what the, her favorite TV show is. It's days of our lives, like nodding yes and no. She's a horrible time, like listing off like Jerry Springer, uh, you know, but yeah, days of our lives. Okay. So I actually find it's on TV. And um, so I put it on and she still can't speak. And she's still just staring at me. She's not looking at the TV and I'm leaving the door. I'm, I'm walking out the door. And then as clear as day, I hear, thank you. Like she was just working so hard just to get the words thank you out. Okay. Um, you know, as a doctor, it's like, I have limits to what I can do. Like the physical body, it corrupts, it falls apart. And, um, so what am I to do as a doctor about that? Right. There's a, there's a limit to what I can do. All right. Um, but the soul is eternal. And as a doctor, that's at least one angle that I can approach is the soul. Okay. Um, so when I left that room, though, I, you know, I, I've kind of reflected on this, and it just made it, it seems to make it so clear for me. I mean, is this lady her brain, right? Is she just her brain? Uh, no, no, she has a brain, okay? You can't be what you possess. You can't be one of your parts. Is she just her mind? No, no. She has a mind, okay? She has certain capacities that we attribute to the mind, but is she just her mind? No, she has a mind. You can't be one of your parts, Okay. This is an irreducible person, okay, who inherently, no matter how ill, has equality with everyone else, including all the people in this room, many of which are in their prime. This lady is just as equal in human dignity to any person in this room, okay? Uh, and, you know, uh, I've been doing this pandemic thing, and I guess there's been all these cultural shifts, which I don't know anything about it, but I have all these woke medical students now. And, uh, you know, uh, fine, you know, I, there is something I very much appreciate about them, uh, especially Generation Z, is that they actually do, I think many of them authentically have this impulse that we ought to treat everyone equally, okay, or people are equal in some way. But I often challenge them. I say, well, how is that so? You know, how are people equal? If you're a materialist, can you believe that people are equal? No two people have the same amount of atoms, right? So um, are they equal in size, height, intelligence, um, abilities, functionality? No, none of those. Athleticism, none of those things, right? So how is it that two people are equal? Or, and are all people, how are they, how are they equal, right? Well, I think that having a soul is a good grounds for equality. We have a soul and we're made in the image of God. And every person in this room and every patient that I have is an image bearer. Okay. And I think that that's excellent grounds for human equality. I have one question. So, um, so if I understand, if I understand this correctly, uh -huh. so you would say that intentionality uh, is ascribed to, let's say, Soul, right? Yeah, the person, yeah, person. people, yeah. So, um, in, that, in the light of that, how would you interpret Benjamin Levet's experiment? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so Levitt's uh, experience in 1983 had to do uh, more with free will. So, which, um, 
I would say is a type of intentionality, right? So I intend to choose this or that. But the, the problem here, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. The problem I see about the conflict I see here is that um, in Levet experiments, I don't know how to Yeah, sure, whatever. It's fine. Benjamin Levet, yeah. In his experiments, the brain activity, whatever it's called, yeah. the brain activity preceded conscious. Oh, that's not what the experiment showed. Um, well, what? Yeah, so um, so there's a readiness potential. So so how the experiment worked is that the person uh, was told that when they have an urge to flick their wrist, uh, that they should flick their wrist. Okay. Um, so I'd say a few things about this. So what what you would expect to happen here is that um, it would go in this order that. Um, the person has an urge to flick their wrist, their wrist or something like that. Uh, then you would see brain activity, right? So the, the getting ready to flick the wrist and then the action, right? But uh, something different was seen, right? So you had the brain getting ready to make a decision, right? And then the patient's aware that they're about to make a decision, or the brain has made a decision as some interpret. Right, exactly. This is, I think this is the problem, right? So, um, and then the person uh, flicks the wrist, but the brain, they say, has already decided that the person was going to flick their wrist. So they're just kind of a puppet to what's already occurred. Okay. Um, so the experience doesn't show that at all. I mean, so I would say uh, quite a few things about it. So number one, I read EEGs as like a part of my job, right? I do this all the time. Um, one needs to understand the limits of electroencephalography, okay? So number one is that to even see like corresponding EEG activity or something going on the brain, you need a good 10 centimeters squared brain activity to even see the thing. There's tons of false localization, and you have to be very good at EEGs to interpret these things, okay? So like there's a lot of false localization that just the technology itself is very difficult. Okay. So like, I'd have to actually look and see like, well, how did you interpret that? The other thing here is that there's always preceding brain activity. If there's no preceding brain activity, then that's ischemia. You're having a stroke. I mean, there's always, pre it doesn't tell you what the preceding brain activity is. It could just be the brain getting ready to make a decision. Not that it's made a decision. Okay, so the other thing is with Levitt's experience, uh, experiments is that sometimes someone got an urge to flick the wrist or to flick a finger and they didn't do it. Okay, so there's this preceding brain activity. Okay, um, the person uh, has an urge, to but they, they negate it. They say, I'm not going to flick my wrist and they stop. So he said they have free won't. Okay, but this is stupid. Um, so uh, let's say I'm, I have an urge to eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream, right? Number one, urges just pop up. It has nothing to do with free will. So like when I'm sleeping at night, I get an urge in the middle of the night to pee. I didn't decide that, right? That's not nothing to do with free will, okay? So, uh, so that's number one. Like it just has nothing to do with free will. Number, number two is the free will component so if I'm eating Ben and Jerry's because I have an urge, and then I stop eating Ben and Jerry's because I made a conscious intention to stop eating Ben and Jerry's, that's free will. I have chosen between two alternatives to continue to eat Ben and Jerry's and not to, okay? So, you know, I don't think that these are good experiments. 
um, you know, you set someone up for this passive experiment and then they act in a passive way and then you determine that they're just passive to that. I mean, the, the whole experiment just guarantees that this will be the outcome. Does that make sense? It's, all, it's just not free will. Like flicking my wrist because I have an urge or peeing or sneezing or something like that. These are urges. They arise in the brain. Okay. That is not in any way similar to like me deciding I'm going to marry my wife. You deliberate with that over a long period of time. Some decisions take weeks, months, years, or decades. Okay, so this just isn't—it's not an experiment on free will to begin with. Okay. I have a question about um, how you would define the difference between, or if there is a difference between consciousness and the soul. Yeah, so um, consciousness would just be a capacity of the soul rather than like a separate thing. So like the soul has certain capacities. So it has like what are called vegetative capacities. So it like takes in nutrients, grows and reproduces. It has sentient um, capacities for like self locomotion, um, being aware, having instincts, things like that. Um, and then there's a higher degree of uh, capacities, which include like intellect, reasoning, free will, things like that. And, um, Consciousness would just be like um, just a capacity of the soul rather than like a separate thing. If that makes sense. And then um, how would you like sort of equate that with panpsychism? Oh, yeah, panpsychism. Wonderful. So panpsychism is this idea. So, so you know, I said like what's in the effect must be in the cause. So like we have awareness, but matter doesn't have awareness. But then they're like, well, what if matter does have awareness? You know, we solve the riddle. Um, but does my belt buckle, is it aware? I mean, my shoes, is, it, is there awareness there? Is there the potential for awareness in these things? Um, it seems unlikely to me. It seems very unlikely that, that these things uh, have the potential for awareness. I can't, like, disprove that, right? Maybe my belt buckle is, like, you know, I don't know. You ate too much tonight. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't know. So I, I don't know. I don't buy panpsychism. Um, but um, there's some smart people. David Chalmers, I think, is a, is uh, endorses panpsychism, but I just don't think there's any grounds to believe it. Uh, I was wondering if you personally believe that all living things have a soul, or like animals, or is it just us created in God's image have souls? Yeah, I believe everything that's living has a soul because a soul just is that which makes a thing alive. So, like, plants have um, a vegetative soul, mm -hmm. so they can reproduce, grow, take in nutrients. My question and, and, is, like, mm -hmm. bacteria. And, and uh, the, the question, are viruses alive? And then, oh, yeah. That's a huge debate if viruses are alive. So they do. They do. So if they replicate, if they grow, and if they reproduce, then Aquinas and like Aristotle would say that they are living. And many scientists do think viruses, like bacteria, are living things. There's actually like um, a lot of debate. And like scientists will get like really mad at each other about this. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't care. Um, so... Um, but yeah, so if a bacteria is a living thing, then, um, so we know that all natural substances have a form, bacteria has a form, and if we are to say that bacteria has vegetative capacities, then yes, it would have a soul. But again, I just mean that which makes a thing alive. I do not mean that a bacteria survives its death and like there's like bacteria heaven. Um, <laughs> nor do I think that bacteria is created in the image of God, although God did create it. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I would maybe say that. But it's just us in having a rational soul with intellect and will for which we're created in the image of God.
Um, hard problem of consciousness. Do you think it is a hard problem, or do you think it isn't a hard problem? It's a hard problem for me, um, but I don't know. Maybe the Thomist. Um, I haven't read a whole lot on that. I know uh, I quoted Peter Hacker, and he talks about that a lot. Um, that consciousness is not like a separate entity or a thing. It's just like a capacity that we have as human beings. And he, he just is very careful with the language. And when you read him, he describes it in a way that this is not some special thing. It's just a capacity that we have as human beings of being conscious. And it's the suke, the soul that Aristotle talks about that gives us this capacity. Um, but like, you know, how exactly the form of a human person brings this about, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It, it actualizes the matter and the body to have these potentials somehow. So, um, and you know, God is self-conscious. God is self-aware. And this is part of being made in the image of God. So God has given us a soul, a suke, the, ru the ruach Yahweh that gives us the capacity to have consciousness. Okay. Is what uh, causes us to make the decision. Why would it, why would uh, injuries to the functional part of the brain um, yeah. make it hard for someone to decide? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it kind of raises this thing like, so um, if if we have a uh, a rational, if we're said like we're defined by having a rational soul, but a person can no longer act rationally. Um, then do they still have a rational soul? And it kind of fits with these things where like someone has lost some capacity such as having uh, intellect or will or emotional capacities like poor Phineas Gage. Um, so the idea here, I would, I actually think John Eccles' example of the, the mind is to the brain as a pianist is to a piano somewhat fits at least understanding the concepts with Thomism. So um, let's say that um, a piano has potential, like it's well-tuned, right? So you can play certain notes and, and all of this, right? But then uh, one of the, one of the uh, keys is broken, right? Someone maybe poured some coffee on the piano and they're stuck and they're not playing quite well, okay? So, uh, so the pianist sits down and goes to play the piano, but it sounds terrible. It's not playing correctly, okay? Well, I think when someone has sustained damage to the brain, it's something like that. The soul is using the body, or the soul is kind of, um, you know, you have soul and you have matter, and the soul is kind of directing the matter so that you have these certain capacities. But then if the matter is damaged in those capacities, which the soul uses, it just can't manifest anymore. Okay, so like if the piano is not playing, that doesn't mean there's anything uh, wrong with the pianist. There's something wrong with the material component. So I think that makes sense too in Thomism. So you have this soul, it actualizes the potential of matter, but if the matter is damaged, it just can't actualize any potentials because the matter is damaged. Okay. What are your thoughts on the difference between uh, the soul and the spirit? I've heard some say that animals have souls, humans have souls. Yeah, so the spirit is not a separate entity than the soul. It's the highest capacity of the soul. So we have a soul with distinct capacities. So like Aquinas had to answer these things. Like, do people have three souls? Do they have a vegetative soul, a sentient soul? And do they have a, a rational soul? Do we have three souls? That was a debate back then in the medieval times. He said, no, no, the soul just has many capacities. 
And the very highest capacity of the soul is um, spirit, okay? So like the intellect and will, that which has a divine purpose, that which is uh, made to worship and love God is the spirit. But that's a capacity of the soul. It's not a separate entity, okay? Now, there's the Holy Spirit. And then how does the Holy Spirit play into our soul? Does that then, do we have a, our own soul, a Holy Spirit, our own spirit, you know, how, how do you, you know, do we get to this tripartite? Uh, I would say no, uh, that the Holy Spirit um, infuses um, the fruits of the Spirit and grace upon a person uh, and kind of raises our, we become a new creation. So the Holy Spirit kind of enters us. It raises the, the soul of the person to a higher level. Okay. So it like imparts grace and imparts the fruits of the spirit onto our soul and we become a new creation. One thing I find really brilliant about Aristotle is his uh, ability to incorporate the senses and as being crucial to intellection. But one thing mm -hmm. I was curious about is does science account for things that occurred, what happened between the senses and the intellect, such as the assemblance of the phantasm? Or is, the, are, is that just the purely philosophical? Yeah, so sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what science has to say about it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think much. It just locates areas of the brain that, you know, correspond to what the person's doing. And the person tells them I'm doing this. And then they look at the scan. They say that must be that. So, um, so the idea that uh, Aquinas has in Aristotle, too, is that uh, we're very much reliant on our senses. So we have uh, various senses we can touch, smell, see, this kind of stuff, right? So um, I, uh, I don't know. I touch this notebook, and uh, I teach at a medical school. I could tell you the very complex things for this sense of touch to get to my brain, right? So um, it goes through the spinal thalamic tract. It crosses here, crosses there, goes to certain areas in the brain. Okay, so I touch, I, sme uh, I smell, I, I, I see things, I hear things, I taste things, all of this. And this uh, sensory input comes into the brain, and this sensory input um, uh, of particular things, we can only take in particular things. So it comes in through these uh, sense apparatus, gets into the brain, and then from this sense data, we can form memories and we can imagine. So we can picture things in our brain. We can close our eyes and we can think of a triangle. So I close my eyes, and I can think of um, different types of triangles, an isosceles triangle, a scalene triangle, you know, different types of triangles, right? And uh, this is all in the imagination, and this is a corporeal thing. It's a, it's a physical thing, according to Aquinas. But then the intellect can do something that no corporeal organ can do. The intellect can um, abstract um, universals from triangles. So you can, you can like think of just triangularity itself. And Aquinas argues that it's impossible for any material thing to do this, that it can take in the forms of other things without itself changing the form. You can have triangularity instantiated both in you and many things in nature without you losing your form. Therefore, it must be immaterial. This is like very difficult. Um, I won't go through it. Now, neuroscience, um, we could have someone thinking about triangles and we could image their brain and we'd say uh, triangles are associated with the, I don't know, prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate gyrus, the caudate nucleus, and the putaneous, you know, whatever. And things light up. Um, but again, you can't then say that is the thing. You know, we talked about that, right? So those are the things that are necessary for you to imagine or to 
abstractly think about things. So I, you know, you can't prove that the thing that you're looking at actually is abstraction. Right? Aquinas says abstraction can't have a physical organ. I was wondering what some of your colleagues uh, think when you talk about these things, right? So some neuroscientists say, uh, because maybe it's hard to defend uh, Aristotelian or domestic metaphysics to them, but some of these arguments that um, you presented today are quite um, formidable, I'd say, against uh, oh, thank you. physical mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you tell them about the problem, of the hard problem of consciousness, or quality, or intentionality, or the fact that our thoughts have a, a divine yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless my colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that some philosophers, I mean, yeah. some philosophers who are not theists came up with, with some of these arguments, and then they have to, to say that, well, maybe we don't have thoughts, or we don't have quality. So I was wondering if you're a scientist, uh, kind of embrace that, that kind of... Uh, most of my colleagues don't think about these things at all, um, um, and that's not that's not that's and they don't. I'm not that's not an insult to my colleagues. Um, my colleagues have a tremendous amount of responsibility to um, try to uh, I want to say save people's lives to be experts on. I need to know how to treat a hemorrhage. I need to know how to do a, treat a brain tumor. I need to know how to treat epilepsy. I need to know how to get someone out of a myasthenia gravis crisis. I need to do all these different things, right? And that's a tremendous responsibility. So they spend almost all their time doing that. And they just don't think about these things. So, um, you know, some of most neurologists that I know are atheists. Uh, but they don't, I never have seen one that has a good explanation for their atheism. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I do dialogue with these folks. They don't know what Aristotelian metaphysics is. They don't know who Thomas Aquinas is. Um, they don't know the term physicalism. They just, they have, uh, most of them just don't know these things. And uh, you can tell in their publications, uh, you know, they'll, they'll make all sorts of claims that just aren't warranted. Okay, so you see like a lot of irresponsible claims and it's not, it's not arrogance. It's not that they're trying to be deceitful or, you know, deceitful or whatever. Um, they just don't know. So um, that's why I do this. That's why I educate this to evangelize. So my hope is that uh, I can talk to my colleagues and, uh, and all of this. Yes.